Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Warning, the Savage Nation contains adult language, adult content, psychological nudity. Listener discretion is advised. And now, the world's most exciting podcast, The Savage Nation, home of borders, language, culture, and here he is, New York Times best-selling author and National Radio Hall of Fame inductee, Michael Savage. Well, happy holidays to my loyal Savage Nation podcast listeners. With another great year winding down, and it's been a really great year for the Savage Nation podcast. We're in the top 0.3% of American podcasts. I want to take a moment to thank you for continuing to listen to the Michael Savage podcast, and by doing so, putting up a fight for our borders, language, and culture. Now look, more crazy times are sure to come, and they're ahead of us. This is not the end of the road for us. It's only the beginning. And we have to stay vigilant and confident that truth will prevail, and we will overcome the agenda of the fascistic left-wing demagogues. And I, Michael Savage... Hope to continue to speak my truth in hopes to make this country a better place for generations to come. As long as God gives me the energy, the power, and the health, I will continue to do what I've been doing for well over 27 years, which is speaking truth to power. And we need you to keep listening to the podcast and telling others about the podcast. And more importantly, I know you say, well, why should I do it? You've got to listen to the ads and try to buy some of these products. It's the only lifeblood that we have, but there's more. If you would like full access to all I have to offer you from past and present radio shows, podcasts, and places that I've never even broadcast from, journals, unpublished manuscripts, I need you all to subscribe and become members of Savage Premium. And there you will find all of my podcasts ad-free. That's right, ad-free. Now, I'm thankful for all of my advertisers that stand by this show. Without them, there would be no show. But this show ultimately is for the listener. And so not only would you get the ad-free podcasts available 24-7 as a member, but you will also receive access to premium content that is not available anywhere else. Now, here's some examples of what you'll receive that no one else will. Savage, Savage's Leftist Hit Piece, Jackie Mason Visits the Savage Nation, Where Have All the Men Gone, Savage and Hollywood Idiots, Immigrant Barbarians at the Gate, Savage Reads from his best-selling novel, Countdown to Mecca, How Was the World Created, An Insight from Jewish Mysticism, The Diet of a Young Savage, Special Replay Savage 25th Radio Anniversary Show, and How Ultra Tolerance is Killing America. These are some of the special pieces that only members have gotten. So people... Start the new year off right by being the best citizen for you, your family in this nation, and the Savage Nation, and I will continue to guide you on this path as I have always tried to do. All you've got to do is go to glow.fm slash savagepremium. That's glow.fm slash savagepremium, 
And for just $3.99 a month, you'll have access to some of the past and all of the present and the future that the Savage Nation has to offer. Go to glow.fm slash savage premium. Thank you all for listening to the Savage Nation podcast. Tell your friends about it. And I hope to see you all next year. God bless America and have a happy, happy, healthy new year. Hello, listeners to the Savage Nation podcast. Merry Christmas and happy new year from the Savage Nation. Well, by popular demand, we went back over a decade into our golden oldie archives. Things that you've requested that are heard nowhere else. And we're going to play for you family friendly stories for everyone to enjoy on this incredible holiday season. God bless America, and thanks for listening. Let's talk about cars, classic cars. I went to a classic car show. I'm more or less a recluse, as you well know. I even, I pride myself on reclusiveness. Now, there are younger guys who are hungry, and they need to make a, a buck, and they're, they're everywhere. They're the zealots of the media. Wherever you turn, there they are. This tea party, that tea party. It's important stuff. Everywhere you turn, Fox News, CNN, Bill Markowitz's show, everywhere you turn, there uh, there are zealots in the media appearing every day in every way. Now, that's fine. I don't do it. I never like to do it, and I don't want to do it. So I basically stay in my house in pajamas, except for um, the occasional bicycle ride or the occasional car show or the miserable trip to a restaurant, which I always regret. Now, there's a secondary note to all of this uh, talking here on the Savage Nation. I stayed in bed most of the weekend, and I feel great. My mind feels better. I feel calmer. I can think. So I went to a car show, the Marin-Sonoma Classic Car Show out in the Marin, where was it? An outdoor thing. And I was astounded at the love for vehicles that I saw there, including my own. I mean, I can remember the cars that were there, some of them, the Duesenbergs the 59 vet, the Mercedes-Benz 300 SLs, the Bentley Continental from 1961, the Pierce Arrows, the 56 Continental, the 56 T-Bird. I mean, see, if I just mention the names of these cars to most of you, they actually symbolize to you various uh, images come to your mind. And if I say to you, I saw the most amazingly beautiful 1957 Chrysler 300D, and I couldn't take my eyes off it, you'll understand what I'm saying. But, you know, it's funny. Of all the cars I saw there, I had a friend I ran into, an old mechanic friend of mine. He used to fix my old Jaguars, which always broke down. He took a picture of me in front of one car. I only asked him to take a picture of me and Teddy in front of one car. It was a Model T Ford uh, Roadster. It was so beautiful. And I wanted to picture myself in front of the Model T only because I used to build them out of plastic when I was a kid. And it just reminded me. I remember the hard rubber wheels. It all came back to me. But what I'm getting at was the crowd at the auto show. And I was thinking about a few things as I walked around looking at these stunningly gorgeous cars. I could not get out of my head, what would the Obamaites be thinking? That's all I was thinking. What would these hardcore leftist freaks in the White House think of a classic car show such as the one I went to the, uh, over the weekend? And all I could think about was these mean monsters from Harvard these undereducated pinheads would sort of not only look down upon classic car shows such as this, but that in the future they might ban this sort of show because the cars were not green enough or that only people with money could afford cars like this. 
And I started thinking as I walked around looking at these incredible classic cars, what do you think it is about car shows that angers progressives? And then I was going to ask you, do you still have a love affair with cars or are they just box transportation to you? And then I was going to say, what does the way a person takes care of their car say about their politics? And do liberals drive differently than conservatives? I can say for sure. Genuinely, when I'm cut off, it's a lame brain with an Obama bumper sticker from the right lane. One after the other, and it's usually older women who have been disappointed in life. Either their husbands left them or they were never married or whatever it is. They generally still drive around with the Obama, you know, for president bumper sticker in some kind of econo box. And they usually try to cut you off in the right lane. And when you don't let them in, they get furious. Like we have merging lanes in certain parts of the area where I live. Inevitably, they know the right lane merges into the left. They know it's coming to a dead end. And it's always the, quote, nice liberals who try to speed up in the right lane. And I don't know. I won't let him in. I won't let him in. I'm a very competitive person. I don't like being cut off. So I give Wilhelm the gas, and Wilhelm gives them the fume, and they get cut off <laughs> to the you know, like, screw you. I mean, what do you mean? You're going to cut me off because you're a nice person? Because you have an Obama bumper sticker? So I, anyway, so the cars. You know, you want to talk about cars. I don't know if you want to talk about it. You want me to get into the, uh, the, the whole politics? Hello? That is why I'd rather talk about uh, Janis Joplin's psychedelic theme, 1965 Porsche 356 Cabriolet. I have never been a Porsche fan. I never owned one. I never wanted to own one. I was never, I don't know what it is, maybe the Nazi thing. I don't really know. It can't be the Nazi thing because I own a Mercedes, and that was so long ago, who cares anyway? I mean, I love Mercedes-Benz. It's, it's the best car I ever owned in my life. It's all I drive. I told you I have fancy cars, and I have, I have unfancy cars. My daily driver is a 300, a 600S, an S600 Mercedes. I, I gave it a name, Wilhelm. I don't drive around saying Wilhelm. I don't talk to it. I'm generally either driving or talking to my dog, Teddy. But the fact of the matter is, after I got this car, I never, ever needed a sports-type car. And I do own a Ferrari, a 430. I rarely, if ever, drive it. But the funny thing is, is that after I saw the Testarossa, and the other Ferraris at the fairgrounds yesterday, actually, even though it was cloudy and horrible and miserable weather, I went all the way to a garage where I keep it, took the cover off it, and took the Ferrari for, for drive because the color itself, the Ferrari red in the gray, was astoundingly beautiful. But I'm not one of these guys with the top down making believe I'm enjoying the sun. I don't know. I still don't understand that part of it. Do you? I can't understand it. Whenever there's a hot, sunny day, you see people with the top down, mmm, they're enjoying the sun. And I ask myself, did they go to the fifth grade? Did they don't understand the relationship between the sun and skin cancer, especially amongst white men over the age of 13? I mean, what are they thinking? A convertible's nice for a night, a warm, balmy night in Miami, but not for the day. What do you need sun on your face for? It's to show off. That's all it is. Now, who in this day and age thinks anyone who drives around in a convertible is rich? Or a celebrity? Does anyone? Can you answer that question? Most of the so-called loser celebrities in Hollywood drive Priuses anyway. I, I know that for a fact because I go to L.A. an awful lot. They wouldn't be seen dead in a new car uh, other than a uh, some kind of hybrid. You know, hybrid. All the lowbrows are in hybrids. I love that one. But that's it. I mean, there's a lot to be said for a Rolls Royce. A Rolls Royce in this economy? Yeah. Hello. Yes. If a man earned the money. And he bought a Rolls Royce, and he loves the Rolls Royce, 
Who are you to tell him he can't drive the Rolls Royce? He's paid a gas guzzler tax. That's not enough, though, for Cass Sunstein from Harvard, whose father taught him over a seltzer and uh, corned beef how to take over the world with lies, in my humble opinion. I'm so sick of these communists, you have no idea. That's why I don't want to talk about them. I don't want to even dignify these communists from Harvard. I'll be right back. Michael Savage, a host like no other. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. Armor All. Less work, more clean. Terms apply. My favorite, actually, there's a number of favorites. The 57 Chrysler 300D. Unbelievable. The big Hemi engine with the twin carbs, twin four-barrel carbs. I say to my friend Alan, uh, are they hard to keep to keep together? He said, no, not at all. He said, I, you know, he's a mechanic who's done this for 40, 50 years. I don't know how long. He said, no, they're very easy to maintain. He said, these older cars are very easy to maintain. They were much easier than the new ones. There was a 49 Cat convertible, a light green. Oh, my God. I love that car. I really always wanted like a 53 Caddy convertible. I mean, I could buy one, but I don't because it's just more to take care of. But I realized my love affair with engines and cars and why liberals hate them. Why do liberals hate, for example, Indy, the Indy 500? Why do they hate uh, stock car racing. Why did they hate everything to do with cars? Well, there's a number of reasons. One, it, it well, no, let's stick to the classic car. The, the reason libs hate classic car shows is they represent two things that libs detest. They represent affluence, that you have enough money to maintain a car like this, and you take pleasure in showing it to somebody. That's number one. That's so unliberal. Uh, and number two, uh, freedom. They represents the freedom to do what the hell you want with your money, not send it to well, Indonesia after an earthquake, for example. Like, you know, let the government take care of it. It's not my problem. Stop demanding I take care of the whole world. I really don't care about the whole world. I'd rather buy a 1957 Chrysler 300D if you don't mind. And then, of course, it's the green thing. You know, the big greens, the liars. They fly all over the world to protest uh, uh, a little too much as far as I am concerned. Let's talk about other things my sermon three pages two pages one minute thousands of years ago a little-known man in a Middle Eastern desert tried to lead his people from idolatry and hatred today the descendants of these original tribes of Israel are known as Jews what we ask is a Jew is it a religion a race a mindset it is to me a constant relationship with God the eternal creator a constant dialogue within ourselves asking, pleading, demanding to know why the good will sometimes suffer horrendous fates or why the evil appear to enjoy the riches of their plunder. It is this ability to ask without hearing, an answer, but to keep asking eternal questions without losing faith in goodness and godness. It is this desire to want to hear the very voice of God without hearing it. It is coming to know that the questions themselves are God's way, which makes the Jewish spirit an eternal manifestation of that transcendental experience in the desert thousands of years ago, which gives each Jewish person a special destiny, a special burden. What is it? To waste the spark of the fire of original knowledge is to throw away 
not only your own destiny and inheritance, but a portion of the destiny and inheritance of the people chosen by God to be his bearers of the light. Being human and not God, we all sin by missing the mark. And that is my message to my friends gathered here tonight on the Savage Nation. In Hebrew, the word sin does not exist. Did you know that? It does not exist. It translates closely to miss the mark, for God is forgiving, or not one of us listening to the show today would survive a single day. The message is to try to hit the mark again and again. That is the Zen of maintaining the inheritance of God. Seek truth, seek justice. So Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year, marks the beginning of 10 days of awe, a period during which the Jewish people are judged by God who decides whether they will be inscribed in the book of life for the coming year. It is an intense time for Jewish people, a time of trial and forgiveness. It concludes with Yom Kippur, a day of repentance. And so, as we leave the savage speech and we go into the wilderness of our own lives, I want to uh, wish every listener to this show to remember this. Be happy. God made you. God loves you. Why does Karzai continue to wear that Boy Scout cap? I don't get it. What, what is that Cub Scout uniform? You know, that's so, like, third world outfitty. I mean, what, we know he's the president of a third world nation. Let's talk about Afghanistan for a minute now that I got your attention. I'm glad I got your attention. Can anyone explain to me why are we in Afghanistan? Because I still don't know. Why are men dying? Why are men fighting? Why are men getting maimed? For whom? For whom the bell tolls and why Americans want us out of Afghanistan, incidentally. Now you say, oh, I'm shocked to hear that. We thought you were right wing. Don't you understand who I am yet? Don't you get who I am yet? Why are we in Afghanistan? I thought Obama was a peacenik. He comes to power and he increases the troop strength by 30,000. And to top it all off, in addition to increasing the war in Afghanistan, which we're not winning because of rules of disengagement, did you hear that they're actually giving medals for not fighting? Hold fire and earn a medal. You didn't hear this story. You're not going to believe it. You thought the rules of engagement on the Bushki were bad. You're right. But U.S. troops in Afghanistan could soon be awarded a medal for not doing something. It would be given for courageous restraint, for holding fire to save civilian lives. I cannot believe what I'm looking at. It's as if they're saying American men are trigger happy and they go out of their way to kill civilians. You know that the enemy hides amongst their wives and children. You know that. So, this is shocking that we have a military that's been turned into such putty by the, uh, by the uh, liberals. So, why do liberals hate classic cars is, the, is an interesting question. All I could think about as I walked around the fairgrounds looking at the, uh, the beautiful cars was liberals and why they would love to ban this sort of gathering and how they'd like to turn these cars into... Uh, you know, recycle them into sort of, uh, I don't know, homeless shelters or something. I couldn't believe it. it's like two different universes. You know, Caterpillar C18 diesels, unbelievable engines. Unbelievable engines. And my boat just gets up and, you know, you've got this 40-ton boat. You're doing eight knots, seven knots, nine knots. You get her out through the Raccoon Straits. And you're heading out toward the bridge if there are no pesky sailors or pesky... Uh, uh, the sailboats I can dodge, at least I could see them, but the schmucks on the uh, kayaks I can't stand. They're, this, they're as stupid as bicyclists on country roads. What do they have in their heads, these morons and kayaks? 
you're going out in a kayak in an open waterway and there are boats and we're supposed to see you in a turbulent bay and you won't put a flag on the back of your schmuck kayak your nanook of the sea you how did you get your schmuck kayak to the water i like to ask the putts you put it on, on your stupid suv and brought it there idiot but all of a sudden you missed the purity now i don't mind if a guy kayaks but keep it to the side of the damn bay or put a flag on the back of your thing so no one runs you over. So I go out and I see the bridge, the Golden Gate Bridge, and I want to head out to the sea. So I open the engines up. That boat jumps 40 tons. If I slam the throttles forward, I don't slam them. I push them forward. I don't like stressing uh, an engine any more than I stress myself. I grade up fast, though, and I go to, let's say, I don't know, 2,200 RPM, and you'll see this boat move from 8 knots to 20 knots, 22 knots, like a like a, a, fa- a fast speedboat. Think of it, 40 tons, and it'll move like that. Yes, the fuel consumption's enormous. A Cat C-18, which runs about uh, 1,000 horsepower each, you got 2,000 horsepower. When you're running at 2,300 RPM, you're burning about 52 gallons an hour on each engine. So let's say 100 gallons an hour on the boat. So that's your business? Who's paying for it, schmuck? You? I'm paying for it. Savage. I'm plagued by doubts about the existence of God and about whether God really cares or whether I'm alone in the universe or there really is, you know, somebody up there who likes me, truthfully. I've had events in my own life which indicate there is something other than me and something other than events around me that need explanation for which there are no explanations. So therefore, I at a certain point have to go by the way of uh, belief. I know it, you come to belief in this way, it's not a wholehearted belief, but that's the way it is with me. Maybe you hear it in my voice, maybe you hear it, uh, you don't hear it at all, you hear a guy who's sure of himself. But when it comes to the God thing, I'm telling you the truth, some days I just don't know because I can't understand the suffering that he permits. I can't understand the children born with diseases. I can't understand so many things that happen. And then on the other hand, I know miracles exist and whether they're just chance occurrences as a scientist by training, uh, I certainly understand those who are skeptical of this whole God concept, and so therefore I go back and forth myself. Savage. The Savage Nation. It's Savage On Demand. Merry Christmas, Savage Nation. And here is a gift for you from Santa Savage. It's the best of 2010 from the Savage Nation. You want me to tell you what happened at the museum, a night at the museum? I'm not sure you want to hear about the exhibit, the uh, closed. It had never been open to the public, Birth of Impressionism. So I went. I was invited because I happen to love Impressionist paintings. Who doesn't? We all grew up on them. I mean, everybody grew up on Impressionist paintings. Everybody who went to college had to study the Impressionists, right? And so many of you say, ah, that's passe. We don't look at it anymore. Who needs it? We know all about it. You don't know all about it. In fact, I went there and found three new paintings that I didn't know existed. I, I, I take that back. I did know they existed. One of them I knew existed. The Floor Scrapers from 1875 by Calabot. Unbelievable. Rabatours de Parquet, to show you I know French. The Magpie by, Mon- by Monet, 1868. And then most important to me, which was the painting that was very political, The Escape of Rochefort by Manet. Now, why did that painting have any relevance for me? The Escape of Rochefort. I'm going to read this to you for one minute, and then we'll move on to straight politics. But I want to read this to you. It caught me. It's basically a picture of a sea. And in the midst of this big painting of a sea, there's a small picture of men in a rowboat. 
and you read it, Edouard Manet, The Escape of Rochefort, 1881. Now, just listen to the paragraph. It doesn't matter whether you went to college or not. Henri Rochefort founded the controversial political journal La Lanterne, The Lantern, and was actively opposed to the imperial regime of Napoleon III. Sounds like Obama I, doesn't it? This led to his involvement in the Paris Commune, for which he was imprisoned. Press freedom, anyone? Manet depicts Rochefort's daring escape from a French prison colony in New Caledonia. Intended for the Salon of 1881, Manet's political commentary transforms the recent past into modern history. Amen, does it ever. It's interesting to me that they didn't kill political opponents. They didn't send out secret service agents or secret agents uh, to spy on them. Well, they arrested them and they, you know, excommunicated them, in this case, to New Caledonia, which... You have to understand how far away New Caledonia is and how far away New Caledonia was from Paris in the 1880s. If you've been to any part of the South Pacific, you realize it may as well be the end of the world. That he escaped is astounding. But that brings us front and center to today, which is the art, the art of today. Art of today from the political, it's become the polemical. I'm going to ask you a simple question. You don't have to be educated. You don't have to like art to answer this question, right? Here's the question. Can you name one artist in the United States of America? Name one. You can't. Can you name any artist from France who speaks today for France? Can you name one German artist? No, you don't know of any because there are none. It doesn't mean there aren't people who are painting, there aren't people who are sculpting, there are. But there are no prominent artists in any Western nation. So you say, wait a minute, how did this happen? How did we wind up in a place where there are no artists that we know of? How come we don't know of an artist in America? Can you name one scientist in America? You can't. How come there's not one prominent scientist? In other words, you all, if you look back 50 years, you all heard of Jonas Salk. You heard of a physicist named Albert Einstein. You know what I'm saying? The giants. How come there are no giants in the sciences, the arts today? There's an answer to that as well. In my opinion, I have the answer for that. It has to do with liberalism. Liberalism deconstructed the entire West, all of Western civilization and destroyed it. And the reason they deconstructed Western civilization is to enable themselves to reconstruct it in the image of a, of a gigantic new Sovietized world where there is no art except art which serves the state. Witness the Obama posters during the campaign where there is no uh, science other than science which supports the government. Do you follow what I'm saying to you? You have to understand where I'm coming from to understand what I'm saying at all. So I attended an art show at the De Young Museum, classical paintings from the Impressionist era. And I was again taken in by their beauty. But I ask you, where in America today are such works of art being created? Can you name one artist today that creates works of art on the level of a Degas or Renoir? Well, what's amazing is that even the art of that era was sometimes political, as I just showed you. But in the world of art, we've gone from the political to the polemical. Can you think of a single artist today whose art is intended to uplift instead of to offend? Can you think of an artist who describes instead of degrades? Can you think of an artist who reveres instead of reviles America? There's no one. No Western nation currently produces great artists or sculptors, and it's because of the same left-wing-ism that has destroyed our political system. The very same left that would lord a loser like Woody Allen who wishes that there would be a dictatorship where Obama could be a dictator if it wasn't for those nasty Republicans. This is from a Jew. This is from a liberal Jew who wishes for a dictatorship. 
This is why I've told you years ago that you actually shouldn't fear these people. You should pity them. Liberalism is a mental disorder, a very serious one. What Woody Allen doesn't know is that when the Nazis rose to power in Germany, who were, and that was a dictatorship, I guess that was a bad dictatorship. It certainly was, but to Woody Allen, there was only one bad dictatorship. That was that of Nazi Germany. But I guess the Soviet Union had a good dictatorship under uh, Stalin. Now, what did the Germans do? The Nazis took many of the great works of art, which they considered to be degenerate, and removed them from museums, particularly the art of Jews. They took away the art of Chagall, Kodinsky, and they removed them from public view, but they didn't destroy them. <laughs> no, did they? Not at all. Ironically, those paintings and many other classical works of art were stolen and hoarded by high-ranking officials of the Nazi regime. Now, what happened in Russia is after the Russian Revolution, the Bolsheviks tried to put all art into the service of the dictatorship of the proletariat. Stalin issued a decree, quote, on the reconstruction of literary and art organizations, and only art in the, quote, socialist realism style was allowed. What does this have to do with America today? Well, listen, the Nazis and the Soviets, the Nazis and the Soviets were both socialist regimes. Never be deceived. We know the Soviets were so socialist. That you know. The Union of Soviet Socialist Republic. But you didn't know that the Nazis were socialist until I told you this four years ago. And they allowed only art that fell in line with their extreme political agenda. And what did they do? They depicted muscled factory workers and overall struggling in a steel foundry. Or heroic visions of soldiers hearkening back to the uh, Roman Empire. These paintings, posters, and sculptures were propaganda, not real art. And so... You go even to China under Mao Zedong. Remember the peasant posters of the noble peasant working in the field? Again, that's an example of state-sponsored art. And what's happening today? That's the real question. Well, what's happening today is that real art has been hollowed out and replaced with garbage that serves the needs of the state. Do you realize that great art is by its very nature conservative? That crap art is by its very nature liberal? A great painting conserves a moment in time or an emotion so that it can be experienced by future generations. The conservative bees build up the hive. The progressive termites tear down the hive. They critique art. They impose meanings upon it that are designed to further their far-left political agendas. And so the art that is created by leftists is destructive. For example, a painting of the Virgin Mary in elephant dung, a crucifix in a jar of urine, or a mindless repetition of images such as Andy Warhol's soup cans. Why was that designed? What is it designed for? Well, all of those pieces of, of dreck were designed to render the very structure of art meaningless. Remember, the goal of liberal postmodern deconstructive art is to tear down the old institutions like the Catholic Church, the family, the nation, and replace them with chaos. And then in that chaos... There is an environment ripe for takeover by a monolithic dictatorial view of culture in which only one opinion on an issue is allowed, and that is the opinion of the government. And in the world of art, this means giant posters of the great leader mounted on every empty wall, as we saw with the Obama posters that appeared in 2008. In the political world, it means a dictatorship, the kind of dictatorship that Woody Allen and other so-called members of the progressive art community wish Obama had. The left has deconstructed art, and now the left is trying to deconstruct our nation as well. What do I have to tell you? What do I have to tell you? It's the sad state of affairs that we're living in a country. I don't know whose country it is. I know it's not mine. I know that I am not living in the America I grew up in, that I used to wake up in the morning and feel like the luckiest person on earth. 
My parents told me how the world was around me and how everybody wanted to come here. I used to wake up in the morning and feel lucky just to be an American when I knew how bad it was everywhere else on earth. And then I wake up one day and I start to feel, wait a minute, how did this country become almost like a third world nation? How did patriots in this country become suspect? How did deviants and uh, other such individuals suddenly become revered? How is it that every movie that is made is not about a hero, but about a de degenerate criminal? How is it possible that there are so many sick people in so many positions of power? How is it that every crime that is committed, uh, the suspect is immediately a white male? How, oh, how, oh, how, oh, how far have we fallen so fast in the United States of America? I ask myself every morning as I awaken and every night as I go to sleep. That's the truth. That's one man's opinion. If you don't agree with me, you know what? It's too damn bad. I'm an Aries, and I'll tell you the way I see it. If it uh, matches, fine. If it's a blood donation that matches, take it as a transfusion. If it's a blood donation that uh, causes toxicity, then go listen to some schmuck show on NPR where you get your daily dose of uh, seditiousness and cowardice. Because I am sick and tired of mincing words. The Savage Nation. It's savage, uncut, unfiltered, and raw. San Francisco, Cal, you're on the Savage Nation. Doctor, the reason why your devoted listeners are interested in what you had for uh, dinner the evening before the show is simply because, <laughs> well, let's face it, you never have a, well, a dull moment in a restaurant. It, it's either public <laughs> or... <laughs> well, no, wait a minute, that's not true. I do eat and, I do eat and nothing happens other than I eat. Oh, but it's always about either some nasty, uh, mean-looking cook with a cigarette out one side of his mouth staring <laughs> at you uh, or, uh, weird, and the, that's when the food is great. But when everybody's nice and everything's just right, the food is always terrible. So, you know, it's, it's akin to a lot of what uh, uh, of us who uh, frequent hospitality establishments also experience, particularly in the Bay Area. Wouldn't you agree? Well, yes, uh, it's very difficult, except for the few restaurants I go to and I know when to go. I, I avoid weekends, you know, for sure. You, you want to have a good meal, go on Monday night. You get the place to yourself, huh? You got the place to yourself and the food is usually purchased Monday morning. Everybody knows that in the restaurant business. Monday night, Tuesday night's nice. But that's not what most, I mean, most people work. They don't have the time to go to dinner on Monday or Tuesday night. So when you go out in San Francisco, Cal, do you find people rude? Do you find the waiters hostile or what? Most of the time, uh, San Francisco, for as popular as the uh, tourist trade that they claim to have, uh, service is pretty, uh, for the most part, it's pretty low rated. I give it a, a very low mark, a D minus all the way around, especially out here in Marin County where both of us live. Oh, my God. Don't get me started on Marin County. It's why I, I really only eat in San Francisco and in the two places I mentioned, the, the two kings of Italian, the Aliotos and North Beach. Because, they, well, they know me, so they treat me well. That is absolutely true. But they're nice people. They're genuinely nice people. You know what I found in restaurants? Unless there's a patron, a patron at the door, I won't go in there. I don't care where I am in the country. There has to be like an owner or let's say a first class manager who is a de facto representative of the owner who makes you feel at home and welcomes you or else the food to me Never, it's never right. There has to be someone who really cares about what they're serving and watches like a hawk. You know what restaurants are like. If they start to, 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 to ignore every plate, every plate has to be looked at or they, or they, they will slide very rapidly. Don't you think, uh, Cal? 
Well, now, every rule has an exception, though, because I took to heart the, the story you told about the Chinese place. I'm thinking it might be the same place I went, where you go to, it's just a family, and they look at you like you don't belong there, and they hate you, and they'll serve you because they have to. If you, well, you, don't mean out, you don't mean out in the avenues where it looks like Pol Pot's brother is, is the owner, right? He sit kindly yeah, he sits behind the counter. He glowers at you. I feel like like in a, in a, in a movie set for like a, a Vietnam era movie of like a prison camp. And he's the guard up in the tower staring down with hate. That's the restaurant, that one? That's the one. If he's promised to sit in the corner and not make any noise and don't order anything that. <laughs> now, wait a minute. You don't mean now, I'm not going to specify. You don't mean on Geary, Geary Street, do you? Of course, yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, the food used to be great, but they have a new trick. Whatever you order, they bring the rice after the food. You're eating the food and there's no rice. Every time it's the same thing. You have to say, where's the rice? Like they never heard about rice coming with the food. Have you noticed that little gimmick? I, I didn't. I'll have to. I'll be paying attention for sure next time. Oh, you mean you get rice with your food from Pol Pot? How did you arrange that? All I know is I'm, I, I just feel lucky. I get in and out, out of there and eat without getting hurt. <laughs> well, one of the things I don't like, I used to love it because the food was really the best. The, uh, the clay pot cookery was the best, but they got so arrogant. They got lazy. You know, they start raking it in and the white people all bow when they go in. It's mainly the university crowd from UC Med Center. Every one of them bows. Yeah, and then going to have a glass of water. Oh, thank you. 80 times. Thank you for a glass of water and a napkin. I mean, after 10 years of that, what you start doing is you spit at the people who come in. You look down at them like they're morons. What are they thanking the owner for? He's in business to serve you a, a glass of water and a napkin. We got to know, did, did, uh, fr uh, did Teddy freak out when you showed him a, a picture of the Labadoodle? <laughs> the Labradoodle? No, there's a neighbor's Labradoodle that barks at Teddy. But Teddy is a very well-balanced, good-natured little boy, and he doesn't bark back. He looks at him like he's crazy. He figures it's a product of uh, bad breeding. <laughs> Real poodles don't snarl. <laughs> Real poodles don't snarl. They just lift their heads and walk away. <laughs> oh, I've had a lot of fun so far today. Why? Why am I? Why is this man laughing? Because if you stop laughing, you're a dead man. You're a, you're a dead man already. So for lunch, I'm walking around my favorite neighborhood. I walk up Broadway, past the strip clubs. I look in one store after the other. There's the Afghani restaurant. That's a joke unto itself. Everything I have a comment in my head. I passed the tattoo parlor comment in my head. I look in tattoo comment. Next, I passed the Afghani restaurant out of business as we moved to. I said, where would you move to the bar making? A bar making? One, or did they move to another? I never went to an Afghani restaurant. Why do I want to eat like old lamb? Whatever. I can roll them up in a carpet. Next stop, bad pizza. The worst pizza in America is on Broadway. I don't know what it's a front for. I would never eat pizza. It looks like yellow with mice in it. Next, you walk up the street you come to the uh, uh, the hostel and you see the uh, Euro trash and I mean, excuse me, the superb creatures from Europe. And remember, the Euro trash was a popular word you were allowed to use for a while, a phrase that went out of f now it's like a marrow trash. According to Obama, we're a marrow trash and Euro, you, the Euros are, are the hero. How did it become that Europe? The Europeans are like something to look up to. Where'd that come from? I mean, individually, they're going to be nice. And nasty, but what do you mean Europeans? Well, what's that all about? Their culture, just take a look at some of the Europeans outside of hostel. You'll see what culture is. You never saw such misshapen people with knapsacks in your life. Who would go to a hostel? I don't understand that in this day and age. You're either going to get raped or you're going to get herpes or AIDS laying in there. What, what are you going in there for? You're better off in a, in a state-controlled flop house than a hostel. 
A girl alone with a knapsack from Denmark in a hostel in San Francisco? A rape job or a, or a herpes? One or the other. What is she doing here, I ask myself. What are they looking for? You look at these kids. Kids, some of them are like 40-year-old pervs. You know, they're still in the hostels figuring they're going to get lucky with someone from Denmark. And maybe they do. I don't know. They travel the world. I don't know what they're looking for. But you look at a kid, 20, 25, they're traveling. All right, I did it. I did it. So what are they looking for? They're looking for a romance I don't know, or they're looking for adventure. What adventure? What adventure can you have in the modern world other than getting mugged or raped? What adventures lie out there anymore in this homogenized world where you go to China and they look like the, the people from, from Brooklyn? Or you go to Russia, they look like the people from San Francisco. Everyone's wearing the same garbage clothing. No pressed pants, T-shirts. Everyone looks disheveled. Everyone looks disheveled. No one looks right. What is the per? I, I, I'm asking myself. In other words, let's go back to. All right, you're starting to sound cranky. All right, so I'm cranky. So let's go back to when I travel. What was I looking for? Adventure and romance, and I found both. But then I realized that travel unto itself is a bore and a waste of time. Travel for travel's sake has to be about the most boring waste of energy known to mankind. So I decided that I had to do something useful if I ever were going to travel again because I've always hated travel. I'm a homebody, right? So I spent many years going to the most exotic islands on earth to collect medicinal plants, and I did very good scientific research. But it was travel with a meaning. Otherwise, I never would have been there. I hated the place, actually. At a certain point, you come to realize it's just foreign. It doesn't mean it's better. So where am I going with this? I haven't any idea. Any more than a modern artist has any idea why he painted a picture of a broken society. So I've just painted a picture for you. If you want to talk about art, you want to talk about science, you want to talk about Danish women in hostels. So then I continue on my walk up Broadway and I decide, no, I'm not going to go to North Beach and have a big Italian meal. It's lunchtime. I got to do a show. I can't s fill my guts with pasta and sauce and talk to anybody. I don't want to talk to anybody. So I decided to have a power lunch in the cheapest Chinese joint that I know on Broadway where they throw the food at you and they're hostile. They look like... They look like a combination of a Pol Pot and Ho Chi Minh in this restaurant. Really na nasty, particularly to Caucasians. Nasty and mean. But I like the place. I've been eating there for 20 years. They still don't know me. It's an amazing, it's an amazing fact. I mean, I guess all white men look alike. They know me. I go 20 years I've been in and out of the place. Anyway, I, I get the lunch plate. I can't believe they can still turn out a meal like this for like five bucks. I had the uh, calamari and rice. The rice was horrendous. I never even had bad rice in my life till today. I don't know how, how rice could be bad. It was horrible rice. Disgusting. Maybe I'm in, into a day of self-abuse. I enjoyed every bite of the column. <laughs> I loved it. I felt, like, I felt like the revolution had come. I was poor, totally poor again, and eating in the same places I ate in 30 years ago. And guess what? Nothing ever went wrong in these slop joints. And then, wait, here's the interesting part. So you walk through Chinatown in San Francisco, and I go next door. I, I mean, I told you, the minute I eat, I'm looking for the next meal. I look in the next place, a dim sum place, all local Chinese. I can't believe it. Three pieces of shrimp dumplings for like $1.60. Then I go to the next joint, and it's full. And lunch plates are like two ninety five, three dollars. You know, like pork uh, guts over rice. I don't know what's in it. Chicken fangu, uh, chicken uh, chicken uh, fu young. I don't know what. Whatever they threw together over rice to three dollars. Now, when I was young, I used to eat here all the time in these places. I took the kids here all the time. They grew up on cheap peasant food, 
And to this day, we all still love the same cheap peasant food. So what is that telling you? It's telling you something. It's telling you nothing. It's telling you that the man talking to you can ride on a donkey or he can ride in the limo. I can fly southwest or I can fly in a private jet. It's all the same to me. I'm indifferent to it all. Home of Borders. Language. Culture. The Savage Nation. I never picked him out. He picked me out. They trained for eight hours a day. That's the only person the dog knew. Their smell and hearing is so acute. I couldn't imagine going into a jungle without a dog. I know they were close before they ever got there. But oh my God, they're shooting their bullets. They saved hundreds of lives, including mine. There isn't a day that goes by that I don't think of that dog. All right, so I, I, one of my favorite channels is military history or the history channels in general or National Geographic. I stumbled upon War Dogs of the Pacific documentary story of the Marine Dog Platoons of World War II. And they show these men, uh, the Marines, they must be in their 80s when they were interviewed for this uh, or older. And these are the men who saved us from Hitler. These are the men without whom uh, we would be speaking German or we'd be lampshades. These are the men who, when you look at them, I mean, they bring tears to your eyes. And then they flash back to these men in Saipan when they were in their 20s. You see the young man and the old man. And when they were young men, they were dog handlers. And the dogs were largely either, uh, uh, what were they, Doberman Pinschers or uh, German Shepherds. And the interesting part was is that they were uh, given to these men by ordinary American citizens, and they were trained to kill. They were trained to hunt out Japanese in the jungles. And you look at the tales of devotion and bravery and sacrifice by the dog handlers themselves and the dogs and the bond between the men and the dogs from Saipan, Okinawa, and Iwo Jima. These are the best and, the, and just the best men America has ever seen. And we still have many of them, believe me, in the military. The best men in the world. And that's why I supported them when Bush permitted them to be hung out and dried with uh, false court marshals. Some of them are still hanging out there. I gave my own money. Many of you contributed money to Colonel Chisani's cause because Bush could have pardoned him. He never did. Instead, he pardoned drug dealers and other criminals. It's unbelievable what these two administrations have done to our military. So when I look back, when I watch these documentaries of World War II, and I see the faces, these are ordinary Americans uh, fighting the hardest kind of fight there is, you know, hand-to-hand combat, smoking out the Japanese in caves, also very hard men. And you reach a point where you see the dogs. Now, these guys are now doing jungle fighting. They're afraid of snipers, Japanese snipers. A man's senses can only see and hear and smell so far. But a dog's senses are hundreds of times greater, obviously. So a dog is, I think, 400 times greater sense of scent than a man. Never mind the hearing, okay? So they're in the jungle now. They're creeping along, hoping they don't get killed from a Japanese sniper, let us say, on Okinawa or Iwo Jima or Saipan. And they need a dog. So they got the dogs now. The dogs now are let go, and the dogs go ahead of them. The dog can hear a Japanese sniper in a tree 100 yards away. So they knock him out of the tree. Many, many American men are li- were able to live, come home, contribute to society, create a family because of the dogs. They save many lives in the Pacific. And if you watch this, and then you see that the Japanese learn 
that the dogs were real threats to them. They started shooting the dogs first. And then then they flash back to one of the older gentlemen who was a Marine in, in one of these theaters of operation. And he says, after they shot one of our dogs, we really got mad. And you see the grit come out in this guy. And, you know, when he says we really got mad. But then you see other scenes in there that are going to rip your guts out. For example, <clears throat> one of the dog handlers. Remember, these dogs were trained to kill, number one. They were ordinary dogs from households voluntarily given to the military. They were trained to attack and kill by military dog handlers. They had to be trained to kill. So now they're trained to kill. They're brought out into the islands to, to help fight the Japanese in World War II. And so they're also trained to kill anyone who tries to hurt their handler. Talk about, you know, loyalty. They show one of the handlers getting shot. The Marine medic goes in to treat him. The dog lets the medic treat the handler. When the man dies, the dog suddenly becomes atavistic, growls, snaps, and threatens the Americans who want to come near the dead body. Uh, you look at a thing like this, and, you know, you have to understand, you have to own a dog to understand what this, what this scene is. That the dog trained to protect that man will protect that man's corpse with his life. It's unbelievable. Then you see men whose dogs get killed who go to pieces. You see men feeding the dogs the last of their own rations. You see men giving the dog the last bit of food that they have. The dog becomes the last thing they have that they love in the world, in the middle of the hell that they were put. Then you see scenes of men who go to pieces. There was one scene in passing. I had seen something like this once before in my life of men who break down in combat. I saw this uh, uh, before. I may have seen it in uh, in passing in some of the in documentaries. But there was one scene that was astounding. Now, you're talking about the hardest men who were sent out into, the, into these island fights, hand-to-hand combat, the most horrendous, uh, gut-tearing stuff you could ever imagine. We can only imagine what these men had to live through. I don't know if men could do this anymore. I really don't know if anyone could do it in the America of today. I truly don't know if they could do this anymore. I wonder if there are men left that could do this or there were a lot locked up in Pelican Bay. I'm not sure anymore. I watched this show, and you see a man who broke down from the, from the combat, from the ugliness, from the horror of the blood and the guts and the killing and the murder, and he's crying like a baby, <clears throat> sucking his thumb. It's unbelievable to see this, this in the middle of this, and another Marine is holding him with his arm around him, and he's sitting there crying and shuddering like a baby, sucking his own thumb. He had a total crack up in the, in the midst of this ugly, horrendous combat. Now, this was in passing. But, you know, we're talking about uh, something else, which is the dog thing, the war dogs of the Pacific. But I'm, I'm bringing that up as a side note. Okay, so now the war ends. The army shoots their dogs. You hear this? The army decides that all the dogs that fought so loyally in World War II should be killed. They shoot all the dogs that they used. The Marines refused to go along with the program. In other words, in those days, they would not be obotomized. The Marines said, go to hell, we're not shooting our dogs, we'll shoot you first. So the Marines said, we're not shooting them, we're not going to go along with the Obama program of the day, in other words, just because Big Brother told us to, we'll shoot you first, we're not killing our dogs. They were our best friend, they kept us alive, dropped dead. So the Marine Corps backs up. The fat asses back home who decided to shoot the dogs suddenly, the fat asses back in Camp Lejeune who never fought, suddenly get frightened of the Marines and say, all right, we won't kill the dogs. Meanwhile, they have 540 killer dogs in their hands, 
and they don't know what to do with them. So you know what the men say? We will retrain them to become domesticated again. And they work 12, 15 hours a day, and they do teach old dog, dogs new tricks, and they retrain them to be able to integrate back with families. So out of the four, 540 or so dogs that fought with the men in the Pacific who were killers, trained to kill, only four had to be euthanized. It's a story that is astounding, and I would hi- highly recommend that you try to catch War Dogs of the Pacific on uh, the Military History Channel when it's replayed, and I don't know when it'll be replayed. The historical footage and uh, never-before-seen photos are, are astounding. And it was done by a, uh, a director uh, named Harris Dunn, who was a graduate of the USC School of Cinema, and he earned a degree in film production. But uh, he did, main, you know, uh, thrillers uh, such as, uh, uh, I don't know, family comedies, Bonjour, Buddy. And, but this feature documentary directing debut with War Dogs of the Pacific about the Marine War dog handles of World War II is astounding. Any dog lover should watch this and it'll give you a new appreciation for not only the intelligence of dogs, the loyalty of dogs, but the devotion and the bravery and sacrifice of the United States Marine Corps. This is the Savage Nation. I'll be right back. Michael Savage, a host like no other. Let's go to Washington, D.C. Jay, go ahead, please. What's on your mind? Yes, uh, Michael, I've been waiting for somebody to talk about this subject a long time. Actually, the one of the uh, Marines that was instrumental in keeping those dogs from being killed was a gentleman named Colonel William Putney. Uh, hmm. Putney has a book you can read. It's called, of all things, it's called Semper Fi. It's about hmm. the third, third, third war dog company, and it discusses... Uh, those many subjects that you've just gone over. But, but he stood up to the Marine Corps uh, brass and said, we're not killing them, I guess. That's what he had to do. Correct. And his men loved him. Uh, all those families that got him. But he, he was alive up until about four years ago and passed away. But uh, that... that yeah, you know, well, there goes, there goes the last, uh, you know, where are they today? When they go and fight in Iraq, if they actually do the right job that they're trained to do, they get court-martialed by George Bush in the last administration and probably with Michael Mullen now in the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff. A guy's afraid to fire a gun without uh, consulting a manual. He would, have, he, would have been, he would have been outed. I mean, he would have never been, would have never been on the, the, the uh, admiral staff or flag officer back then. He was, he's a, I mean, I don't want to really say, but this Colonel Putney, as far as I'm concerned, he should have got the Medal of Honor. But read that book, Semper Fi. And the one thing I well, want to say Let me ask you, part- Jay, where is the dog cemetery that I saw at the end of the documentary? They apparently have a cemetery of these dogs somewhere. Where is that? Oh, boy, that's a good question. Uh, I'd have to go I couldn't to- believe it. It was an actual war memorial cemetery for these hero- heroic dogs. It was unbelievable. Thank you for the call. Here we have a caller from Los Angeles who, who says he knew Colonel Putney. Steve on KGIL, thank you for calling. Go ahead, please. Yes, I knew Dr. Putney. Uh, Guam was where they had the statue. In Guam, that's where the dog's uh, cemetery is. Cemetery there. I, I, I met Dr. Savage when I was, I mean, <laughs> Dr. Putney, when I was like 23 years old. He was 50 years old. We were the best of friends. 
uh, we used to play golf together once a uh, once a week. Uh, Isn't that well? What did he tell you about the the whole dog program, Steve? That you could share with the audience today? You know what I. Uh, we became such good friends. I used to go. He had a, 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 a dog kennel down in, let's say, Canoga Park that I used to go down with him all the time. <laughs> and, and, and I mean, this was after the war, of course. Uh, we're talking 1973, 74. So he so what I'm hearing is he continued his love for dogs into the latter part of his life long after the war. Uh, yeah, he. I, I think he passed away about four years ago. Yeah, he was a veterinarian for uh, uh, till I think when he passed away about four years ago. Oh, he was a vet. The colonel was a veteran. Oh yeah. I mean, was a veteran a veterinarian. The vet was a veterinarian. Oh yes. I didn't know that. Yes. Oh yeah, big time. He he talked. To and and Steve, did he tell you any stories of the war that would be worth sharing right now? Yes, he says. You know, when you were out in the. the walking around in the bushes and everything else and, and leading dogs. He was so much the leader because he was uh, he was the lieutenant. Uh, I think he uh, went up to, like, captain or, uh, you know, I, I don't remember. But, uh, uh, you know what? I That's that okay. Movie- I, I'm going to tell Thank you very much for that sharing. I'll, now he brought back a memory from the documentary. Let's just let me throw one more piece in. After the men had shown how good these dogs were in combat, they were rewarded with another stripe. They were moved up the ranks. And then the commander said to them, but because you've moved up from corporal, you can no longer be a dog handler because that's for a lower-ranked man. The men, almost to a man, ripped the stripe off their body and said, we'd rather remain a corporal in order to stay with our dogs. No, thank you. You can keep your stripe. Welcome back, Mr. and Mrs. North and South America and all the ships at sea. Let's go to press. I don't care if you're in light air, light breeze, gentle breeze, moderate breeze, fresh breeze, strong breeze, near gale, gale, strong gale, storm, violent storm, a hurricane. Wherever you are on the Beaufort scale, you're welcome on the Savage Nation. Let's go to San Diego. Don, welcome to the program. Hi, Dr. Savage. There's a real easy way to kill those flies on your sailboat. If you, uh, if you blow on them lightly, since they're used to being on the ocean, and when the wind blows, they tend to cling on to you. You blow on them lightly, you can swat them in no problem. Wait, wait, say that again. You blow on them lightly, and what, they get stupefied from the from the halitosis? Yeah, it delays their reaction. No, not from the halitosis. They're just used to being on the windy ocean, so when you blow on them, they cling on so they don't get blown away. And Oh, like if they're, they're, they've alighted on your on your uh, dashboard, so you blow on them so they, they, they stick to it to, to figure they're going to be blown off, and then you swat them? Absolutely. I'm not a sailor. I admire people who know how to sail. I don't like particularly dodging them on the weekend in San Francisco Bay because they won't vary their, their course by one degree, but they'd rather have a head-on collision than change one degree. You have a power boat, so I don't have to move, you schmuck. I mean, you all have a collision. You never saw such arrogance, the sailors. I'm a very defensive uh, boat driver. I, I usually divert. I'll move. The, but you should see the idiots in the sailboats. I have a sailboat, and I have the right of way, and I don't care if we kill everybody. I'm not changing course by one iota, not one degree off, not two degrees. I'm staying on my course, you schmucks, you. I never saw such stupidity as I see in sailors on the, on the bay. New York, Joe, you're on the Savage Nation. What's on your mind, Joe? I'd like to ask you about organized religion. I know that you believe in moral absolutes. And I'm not okay. sure if this is what you mean when you say that you don't believe in organized religion. But like David Skolansky said, who was a famous poker player, he said, if there's a hundred religions in the world, 99 have to be wrong. Is that, is that what you mean when you say you don't believe in organized religion? 
Well, I've heard something like that before from someone, which is that all the religions can't be right if they all say that only their God is the only way. I understand that. But I would say that that's a distortion of man's view of God rather than a distortion of God himself. Well, to that I would say, why would the superior being be condescending to the inferior being? Why not would he, why not would he require it the other way around? What do you mean by condescending? In what, in what manner? He, he, he's, he's, he's asking the, the inferior being, which is man, he, he's pandering to him rather than, say, rather, rather than saying, be like me, he's saying, I'll be like you. I really can't follow you. I really don't know what you what you. I mean, I understand that you're a smart guy and you're an atheist, and you want to convince me that atheism is the clever way to, to, to follow, but get back to me after you have cancer. I mean, God forbid. Tell me if you're still an atheist. I love you, Shell. I really do. Okay, I'm joking. Look, I pray to God you don't get it, but you know, you never had a bad night where you prayed to God? No, I pray to God all the time, and that's why I'm asking you. That's, that's, see, I, I, see, I see cognitive dissonance in your reasoning, where, where you do believe... No, okay, no, I'm, I'm being facetious, and I don't, don't mean to be nasty, but I, I didn't know where you were coming from. You sound like a lawyer I know who I don't particularly like right now. You have the same voice, so forgive me. I was reacting as though it was him. So let's start from the top. Let me give you my religious view. Years ago, I read a book where um, <clears throat> a religious man wrote a book. It was a popular book, and he said that... He doesn't believe God God is omnipotent, just omnipresent, and that if he believed God was omnipotent, he would give up his relig all religion immediately. That made more sense to me than anything. What does he mean by God is not omnipotent? Meaning God cannot control minutiae on the planet, meaning every little act of every little man, every little animal, right? But God is ever-present. God is everywhere, but God does not control everyone's motions and every act. And that made sense to me. Does that make sense to you? Uh... Because of my religious beliefs, I have to disagree with that. I do believe in, I do believe in in in, uh, in God's sovereignty over even man's free will. Okay, hold on, hold on. This is very interesting. So, if a man is walking down the street and he's crossing the street with his three daughters, and a car strikes them in the crosswalk, and two of his daughters are killed, but he is not, and one daughter is maimed, that's God's will. I would say that's God will, and I already know where you're going with this. How can those children, how can God punish innocent children? No. I would say. How about in Connecticut? You're telling me that 11-year-old girl deserved to be raped and set on fire by those two animals? That, 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 was their, that was their just dessert? For what? What did they do? I don't know what they did. I am not omnipresent, as you said before, like God. So you mean she committed a crime worse than, let's say, a mass murderer who's been protected by the liberals for 30 years on death row. So she should have been punished immediately. Uh, but the guy on death row who actually raped and murdered a 15-year-old who's been protected for 30 years, he shouldn't be punished immediately. No, I, I, you see, I, I, these, these are things that I can't explain. I can't explain... The, the, the higher mind of God, the, the, mo the modes of his reasoning. Okay, so what I'm saying to you is this book that I read, the book was called Peace of Mind, and he was trying to describe the highest state that man can achieve in the ordinary man, an ordinary man's life. The highest state you can achieve is peace of mind without medication, right? Savage. Well, thank you very much for listening to today's podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something from it. We have about 400 other episodes available for you to listen to absolutely free. You can go back into our vast library of podcasts and listen to any one of them at any time 
And remember this, if you want to listen to my podcast ad-free, sign up for the Savage Premium Membership and get access to ad-free podcasts as well as some premium content from our Savage Archives. How do you sign up for those ad-free podcasts? Please visit michaelsavage.com for a link. Again, thank you for your listenership. This is Michael Savage.